Hi everyone, this is Noto Sunitar from Refined Policy Talks. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast and uh, I hope you're still tuning into my future episodes. And this time, we're going to talk about the politics of pandemic in Southeast Asia. I will talk to two professors, uh, Professor Zakari Abuza and Professor Bridget Wells. Uh, both of them have written a very insightful article at The Diplomat uh, talking about that particular issue and they they have a very good point on how and why will the COVID-19 crisis affect the political situation in Southeast Asia. We will explore about the, about the political leadership of Southeast Asian governments or leaders and a little bit explaining um, to you who is Professor Zakari Abuza. So he's the adjunct professor at the Center for Security Studies of Georgetown University. And Professor Bridget Wells is the honorary research associate at the University of Nottingham, Malaysia, specifically at the Asia Research Institute. So as you know, this episode is very special because I have both of them talking to me. And without further ado, Let's talk to them. Good morning from Jakarta, Professor Zach and Professor Bridget. How are you doing? Good morning, Nato. So, so where are you now, Professor Zach and Professor Bridget? Uh, I am at my home in uh, the middle of uh, the state of Vermont in, in northeastern United States. It's tucked away up in the mountains, uh, very rural, very sparsely populated. Mm. I'm uh, much closer to, to you, Noto, based in Kuala Lumpur. Um, I'm still in lockdown, although everybody is going out, even though the lockdown is not completely finished. Um, and, and I'm at home, where I think most people still should be. Oh, great. So, uh, professors, I read your article on the politics of a pandemic in Southeast Asia at The Diplomat uh, a few days ago, and I'm so interested to explore more about that issue with both of you. Uh, again, thank you for your time. Um, but, you know, the COVID pandemic is not only affecting the health and economic situation, right? specifically to the Southeast Asian region. Uh, it has also tested the political leadership of ASEAN leaders, uh, some of them have been criticized for not taking swift action in combating COVID-19. Uh, many also criticized of doing some authoritarian measures in the efforts to battle the pandemic. Um, I think you have, you have mentioned also those uh, things uh, related to COVID-19 in your article. But I want to ask you, um, from your observation, how will the COVID pandemic uh, impact politics in Southeast Asia. Maybe you can address it generally, like, you know, the impact on the election, the impact of the political stability in the region. All right. Um, when we were thinking about the implications of the pandemic, it, for the most part, we didn't see any government uh, falling as a result of their handling of this. We, we didn't see any government either losing an election in the short run or um, being brought down. Um, what we did look at was five things. Uh, we wanted to understand the impact it would have overall on people questioning their governments. 
And in Southeast Asia, um, the governments tend to be very paternalistic, whether they're democracies or non-democracies. And, um, you know, this, when you have, as you do in Indonesia, almost 30,000 people who have been confirmed to have contracted COVID-19, you know, and we've watched the government's mishandling of this, even a government that, that was democratically elected, people are calling into question the leadership and efficacy of, of the government. The second thing that we really wanted to look at was a change in civil military relations. In Indonesia, Jokowi surrounded himself uh, with generals uh, rather than public health officials or doctors or scientists to lead the response. And um, it's been very chaotic. And we've seen the same thing uh, for the most part in the Philippines and Thailand as well. Um, but this really has impacted civil military relations. Um, the military in Indonesia is demanding more money. Um, they are trying to take a much more proactive role in leading the pandemic response. And this comes um, several years after we've, we've watched the Indonesian military really try to claw back some of the uh, political powers and administrative functions that they had surrendered with the collapse of the new order regime back in 1998. So it's part of a pattern. The third thing we looked at was the use of the pandemic response um, for, uh, to support the authoritarian tendencies and policies of certain governments. So for example, in the Philippines, Duterte has just pushed through par, uh, Congress um, a counterterrorism law that is very vaguely worded and is something that he is going to be using most likely against his political opponents. In um, the Philippines and Thailand, both governments were very quick to rely on emergency decrees uh, for the response. In Indonesia, Jokowi had floated the idea of trying to get an emergency decree passed, um, but backed down. Um, the fourth thing that we looked at was the pandemic really exposed the growing inequality within Southeast Asia. Southeast Asia has really benefited from the um, globalization, uh, from the global economic upturn in the past few years, but it's very clear that not everyone has benefited equally. There are a lot of haves and a lot of have-nots. The Gini coefficient, which measures inequality, um, is soaring across Southeast Asia. Thailand is one of the most, if not the most, inequitable society in the world, but Indonesia's inequality is growing too. And you know, even governments that have done a good job on the public health side, such as the Thai government, um, they've done a really disastrous job when it comes to dealing with how do you come up with a public policy response um, that benefits you know, everyone, especially the large number of poor people that are now unemployed. The fifth and final thing that we looked at was how um, the pandemic would affect identity politics and in, and in very 
polarized situations. So would there be the scapegoating of ethnic Chinese in Indonesia, or are we going to see this uh, play out in other cases? Um, groups as the economy certainly goes south as we move into recession territory, um, there is going to be a lot of scapegoating, finger pointing. Um, it could be against a uh, immigrant community or migrant workers, such as the Rohingya in Malaysia, uh, or other migrants from South Asia and Singapore. Um, but we really think that um, this is something that, as politics plays out in the coming year, is really going to be exacerbated. Mm -hmm. I'd like to touch on, oh yeah, yes. To add a little bit, I think that um, as we look forward, you know, the other thing that we see uh, that most incumbents still have, still can stay in power. Um, but what's important is, is the intensity of the economic dimensions of the crisis and how these continue to play. Um, you know, it has really been uh, um, <clears throat> intensive in terms of changes in unemployment and others, but the level, uh, whether or not it, it intensifies in a, and there are catalysts Will actually, um, you know, affect these governments. Right now, they have they have patronage. They have relatively weak oppositions that they many of which they have suppressed. And there's also an ability to distract. But um, and I think governments are effective at that. Um, but there is um, there are real kind of reverberations taking place. Um, and uh, right now, uh, the governments have the are are still facing higher levels of challenges, but have a lot of uh, levers of power at their disposal, which gives, which gives the advantage, at least for the short term, to political stability and to incumbency. But down the line, there's no guarantee of that. And we are also seeing some shifts in, in pockets of society responding against these the changes. So it is still a, a situation that uh, it will continue to evolve, and I think a very interesting set of ways. But do you, do you think it's because you know the government needs more stable political situation and more conducive situation at the time of this crisis? That's why I mean, uh, you know, uh, it doesn't need to have more positions to speak up to the public because at the time of crisis we need to have you need you need to make it more conducive, stable. So do you think it can justify what governments in Southeast Asia are doing now? Look, I mean, governments are always trying to maintain stability and maintain their incumbency. Um, they've worked very hard around the region, whether, uh, you know, the, the democracies uh, uh, and, and some are uh, stronger than others, uh, but they all work to weaken the opposition. Um, in the Philippines, for example, the opposition members uh, have been arrested, imprisoned, uh, Duterte has gone after the media. In Thailand, the government, uh, the military-backed government, has been able to disqualify political parties and to use uh, a, a host of different laws to weaken the opposition um, and, and keep them very divided. Um, you know, the, the, and, and, and of course, in other countries, there, there is no opposition. Um, or, or those uh, that are there are just so weak and unready to govern. So the governments have definitely benefited from, from that. But 
again, we see that as a short-term phenomenon, and we think that the way that the governments have responded to the pandemic, and um, in particular, how they are addressing the long-term economic consequences of the pandemic is going to lead to greater pressure on the regimes. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I think there is also something very unique about COVID-19 in the sense that it's a different type of crisis that most of the regions have faced. And that uh, traditionally the crises have been economic, it's been tied to you know, failed policy decisions. I think COVID-19, um, it, is, it is permeating, uh, the threat is not is from your neighbors, right? From your other fellow citizens. So it's, people, it's put people at home in terms of uh, these particular, um, it's, it, it has, it's kind of very highly personalized fear some governments have been better at deflecting and using this fear uh, than others. Uh, and so uh, those that have had more capable public health systems, more interventions, um, really have strengthened themselves. And a the good example of that is Vietnam. I mean, Vietnam has actually emerged, uh, I think, the real big winner in Southeast Asia and the region, both in terms of the economy, but also in terms of gaining political trust. Um, of its of population. This is not to say there aren't concerns, there are some, but I think compared to rest of the regional neighbors, um, there has been significant gains. And I think this is how they've used and been able to combine good public health with the issues of fear and insecurity that are unique to COVID-19. And I think what we're seeing as things move forward is that we see two different sets of issues, right? One is associated with public health, how public health is being managed or mismanaged. And the other has to do with the economic implications of the decisions and very importantly, the global shut, the global economic shut, the re uh, recession or even some ways depression. You know, one of these things about uh, COVID-19 is that if governments ha have lost a lot of control over the, the levers that they can intervene in terms of dealing with this crisis compared to the past. And it, is a, uh, and it is unique in terms of COVID-19 compared to other crises, is that it's a, it's a genuinely global crisis. Um, so there aren't these pockets um, of leadership or pockets of, of, of strength to be able to help other parts of the world respond to COVID-19. So I think there are, are unique uh, elements of this crisis that really test Southeast Asian governments in different ways than before. Um, and I, and I well, and, and it's these tests that will emerge, I think, post the kind of, you know, immediate sort of solving health problems, trying to reduce numbers and reduce infection rates uh, that will actually, I think, be more trying uh, for many of these Southeast Asian governments. Talking about the, the crisis has tested the Southeast Asian government leaders, uh, early leaders. Uh, you mentioned also in article that the pandemic response in Indonesia, for instance, has exposed um, Indonesian President uh, Jokowi weaknesses. You know, as you know, the weaknesses of this political leadership uh, in handling COVID-19 have been translated into low trust towards government and then affect, uh, for example, obedience of citizens to follow the rules and regulations that is imposed by the government. Uh, I, can, I can mention that in Jakarta, for example, the partial lockdown imposed by the government are not fully committed or supported by, by, by the whole citizens uh, in, the, in, the beginning of the, in the beginning of this uh, policy. So what will be the impact for the government if they keep showing and maintaining these weaknesses, either in short term or long term? 
Um, let me start with this one. Look, Jokowi was in a very strong position, you know, should he have chosen to act. Uh, he had just won re-election with 55% of the vote. He had a very strong popular mandate to rule. Um, and yet he uh, engaged in a lot of wishful thinking when it came to the pandemic, when it was clear that it was spreading around the region and other governments were shutting down their economies and shutting down foreign travel. He was out uh, publicly calling on you know, other Asian countries to keep sending tourists and to keep the country open. We know that his number one concern since, since 2014, it has been to grow the economy. Um, this is really, really central to him. And he obviously feared shutting down the economy uh, uh, would damage him. And, and look, he, he can't run for re-election again. So that was kind of frustrating. But that indecision and, you know, just some of his quackery, uh, you know, suggesting that um, teas and different herbal remedies could cure it. Uh, his minister of health has peddled similar quackery. Um, this has not helped the Indonesian economy. And, and we get it. We know that the Indonesian economy is based on tourism. It's based on exports, um, raw natural resource. But until all these countries really get together and start to get the COVID-19 pandemic under control and start to flatten the curve, the Indonesian economy is going to be hammered. Um, they will not get the tourists from the rest of Asia. They are not going to get the uh, exports. Um, it is going to impact manufacturing in the cities where the virus continues to spread. And Indonesia's public health system is absolutely overtaxed right now. It is uh, suffered from uh, around the region. It has some of the lowest number of hospital beds per 100,000 people. It has uh, some of the lowest number of doctors and nurses per 100,000 people. This is a system seriously under strain. And so the president really squandered an opportunity to take a quick, decisive action as they did in Vietnam. Um, and this is going to draw out for a very long time in Indonesia. Right now, we're looking at uh, today, officially 30,000 people with the disease, but because of the low levels of testing, it's very clearly much larger than that. Um, there are 2,000 people officially dead from COVID-19, but um, the best estimates are it's actually more than triple that. Um, and the pandemic uh, is not even uh, flattening out cases, daily new cases are increasing in Indonesia. They are not going down as we have seen in Malaysia or in Thailand. Let me add a little bit to this too. I think that um, we didn't explore in depth some of the questions that you've asked about where Indonesia is moving forward longer term in terms of the, the administration. I think we can see, I see three things. One building on what Zach just said, I think that uh, Jokowi really faces a challenge of implementing his economic agenda and his, his, net, his 
kind of long-term plans such as moving the capital um, ahead. I think that these are things that are going to be really um, a quagmire. He's he's almost um, you know he he's he's really been hampered um, from the start of his his new administration. I think the second thing that is going to increasingly be called into are um, the issues associated with uh, some of his appointees. He's relied too much on people who are not as familiar with handling these sets of crises. Mm. Um, and uh, they have represent certain sets of interests uh, and they don't have a kind of, um, uh, they're prioritizing the issues of immediacy in the economy over a kind of more holistic uh, pattern of governance. And this becomes a real challenge. And I think he will, this will create, I think, uh, um, more criticism and, and put pressure on him to rechange and rejigger and refigure um, his his the who he has and how of some of his appointees. I think this is particularly um, in areas of public health, but also more broadly. I think the third thing we're seeing is you know the government has been responding very sensitively to criticism, uh, in part as a result of how the government has composition has changed and the many of those quarters involving the military and others have always been very sensitive to criticism. But I also think that the fact is, is that um, the sensitivities show a level of defensiveness and this really constrains the ability to think about things moving forward in a more uh, holistic way and to also to bring back, bring back and build back the trust. You know, low trust is normal in democracies as we see in surveys. But the question is really galvanizing the trust that exists eh? um, and, not, and not fostering and um, encouraging polarization and, and much more disintegration of that society and the trust element. Um, and I think this is where you know, Indonesia is facing some sort of crossroads if, if Jokowi doesn't move to try to win back and make some significant steps to rebuild that trust. But I also think that, that we're seeing a big change in, the, in, in, in new forces emerging in politics or other fo opposition forces trying to carve out space for themselves. Um, and I think uh, we're looking at the 10 years of, you know, there's Indonesia like is, is, very, is a large country and one cannot talk about it just from the perspective of Jakarta. Um, and, and also there are many different interests and actors. And I think there's been a lot of shifts in terms of um, uh, civil society mobilization, um, uh, different local responses. Uh, and I think we're going to see um, a diversification. Um, and so when people move away from Jokowi or in the center, they'll move to something else. Uh, and some of that potentially can be very uh, divisive and some of that can be very empowering. And uh, we're going to see this kind of shift in powered nodes um, and challenges. Um, and I think one of the things Jokowi administrations has to be aware of is that the opposition can gain ground unless there is much more stronger interventions uh, to address some of the underlying uh, challenges that COVID-19 will, will play. You know, the administration had a long-term economic vision and, and for the country, but now that has to be reformulated, rethought, and there's not clear signs that that is happening yet so far. Mm -hmm. So uh, I would like to uh, follow up uh, as is uh, what, what you have said, uh, Professor Bridget. Um, so how, what should President Jokowi do to get or win back the public trust? So do you think, you know, uh, cabinet members reshuffle <laughs> should, be, should be doing in, a, in the near future? Uh, my personal view is I think some should be shuffled out and new people should be shuffled in. Um, and I think that so a cabinet reshuffle is a mechanism 
But I also think more fundamentally that there needs to be um, a plan put in place, a, you know, a recovery plan, talk about how to adjust. You know, the structure of Indonesia's economy, um, many of the areas where it gains revenue are, are going to be very seriously challenged. And so far, Indonesia has not been able to successfully um, position itself in the kind of post-COVID-19 shifts that are taking globally towards digitization, towards different forms of industrialization. Uh, and these are things that uh, Indonesia has the capacity for, uh, but I think you have to be thinking about what, what, is, going, what is the world going to be like in this post-COVID environment. Uh, one element of this, of course, is to, is, is to ratchet up some of the aspects of the, so, uh, the social safety mechanisms and the public health sector. Uh, and I think that this is part of a more holistic plan to look at um, some of the, the challenges that are, that are in place. You know, this is, crises are opportunities. This is another opportunity for Jokowi. And I think this is not being perceived in that particular way. It, it, the more kind of defensive reactions really undercut the type of more, the, the, the thinking that says, hey, where can we now put Indonesia in the global economy? Where can we now put Indonesia in terms of addressing uh, and strengthening our institutions in particular sets of ways? I think this type of thinking has not yet um, uh, been, been developed because of, there seems to be more running behind as opposed to thinking about where Indonesia will be ahead. If I could just jump in on that, um, and, and I agree with everything that she said, there, there really has to be a, a, a reshuffle. Um, what he could do to restore a lot of confidence is surround himself with public health and medical expertise and have informed decisions uh, rather than have a, a cadre of retired generals uh, uh, try to lead uh, the, the next counterinsurgency against a virus. Um, that has failed. Um, they do not have the expertise. Uh, they might be good at mobilizing troops to help with quarantines, uh, or distribute medicines, but but they should not be leading this effort. They can facilitate it, they can support it. Um, the more that he has flailed in this, the more he has come to depend on the generals. And I think that is going to make a lot of Indonesians very, very skeptical. They are going to see the return of Dwi uh, uh, the this uh, from the New Order era, um, they do not want the military playing those roles, nor should the military in a democracy play those roles. And finally, uh, Bridget mentioned that, you know, the government has become very thin-skinned. He has uh, tried to crack down on dissent uh, within social media and uh, online and within the press. Uh, he has tried to restrict criticism of the government, and frankly, that uh, really is the sign of a, a weak leader. Um, and we th that should uh, raise alarm bells for anyone concerned with democracy and civil society. Uh, governments are, are fair game for criticism, especially when they are not delivering fundamental goods and sec uh, security and social services uh, to their publics. Mm -hmm. So, 
I'd like to question also on the, you know, the political communication strategy of the government, uh, Southeast Asian government or leaders. You know, it's, it's, I think it's worse than the, the weaknesses that has been exposed in the first uh, stage of this COVID-19 outbreak. So which country or which leader do you think is the best in terms of conveying the policies uh, and containing COVID-19 to the public? Um, Bridget mentioned Vietnam, and I, I would have to agree 100% with that. Um, this is an authoritarian regime. It is a one-party communist state, and yet it, from the get-go, it was proactive. Uh, it acknowledged the scope of the problem. It had uh, a lot of institutional knowledge uh, because of former uh, past pandemics such as SARS or H1N1, um, they maintained that knowledge base and those systems and responses within the government uh, toolkit. Um, the government communicated very effectively and clearly with its population. And again, this is a country by any measure, whether you're using the uh, Committee to Protect Journalists or Reporters Without Borders or Freedom House, all those countries state that Vietnam has the most repressive media environment. And yet the government was very, very transparent and forthright about the problems. They mobilized the society effectively because they um, took the bull by the horns and said, yes, there are going to be short-term economic costs. Uh, but we have to bear it out. And, and um, that won public support. When they locked down the country, there, was, there were not protests. People actually did it. And look what happens on the other side. They're the first ones to come out of this. Their economy is stronger. Everyone else in Southeast Asia is slipping into recession. Vietnam has positive growth. I would actually also, uh, you know, I think well, Singapore has done more testing and therefore its numbers are being um, much higher. Um, and of course, it, the exposing of the vulnerable communities in terms of uh, foreign workers has really you know, put Singapore's growth model and, and, and management and inclusivity under the test. I think for the most part, they, they've also had uh, strong interventions, much more planning. Um, and I think uh, with, the, with the majority of Singaporeans, they, that many uh, see the government's response very positively. Um, I think that this puts them in a very strong position as they face elections, which probably will be this year. Um, and I think, well, a lot of the, the press about Singapore most recently has been negative about what's happening with the vulnerable communities. I think the perception within Singapore is still that, um, that things have been managed very well. Singapore's real challenge is the economy, and these are the, and, and this is the, where it differs from Vietnam in that the economy poses a real problem, um, and, and that I think is actually um, a real challenge. The second aspect, the second place that I would sort of point to that has a really good communication strategy has been Myanmar. Um, Aung San Suu Kyi has been extremely effective by getting on Facebook every day and speaking to the public. <laughs> Uh, and so she's had these sort of kind of uh, special relationship with the electorate. You know, the mother is taking care uh, and explains what's happening. And so while Myanmar's response to COVID-19 
uh, in some ways arguably is even weaker than that of Indonesia in terms of its public health system, in terms of uh, the role that the military has played. The communication strategy that Aung San Suu Kyi has used has actually been quite effective uh, to, uh, to, ma to maintain a dialogue I think there's some lessons here. I think that you know, a lot of this, uh, it, governments uh, are um, recognize that there are things that they can or cannot do, but if they can communicate in such a way uh, that actually builds and fosters at least a trust or perceptions that they're doing things, then they can actually um, you know, really reduce some of the criticism and continue to maintain support um, as they try to work towards addressing these crises or multiple facets very interesting. Um, uh, professors, um, you know that uh, there, there are differences uh, if we compare Singapore, Vietnam to Indonesia. So do you think it's because of their political system or their governmental system? So have there been any correlation between the effectiveness of their political system with the swift action held by those uh, governments? You know, is it because that our politics are very complicated? That's why we cannot have uh, a chance, I mean, our government cannot have a, a chance to, 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 to impose a very swift action um, in dealing with COVID-19? Or what do you think? Is there any correlation with, uh, between those two? I mean, I personally disagree with any argument that says authoritarian states are better equipped to handle these uh, crises. Um, New Zealand, Taiwan, South Korea have uh, led the way in terms of their COVID-19 response. So it, it's not about regime type, but it is about effective governance. It is about public trust in the state. It is about their ability to communicate clearly uh, and, and have transparency. Um, all those have allowed the, the governments uh, to um, really you know, they've let scientists uh, lead uh, the, the policy responses. They've come up with holistic uh, uh, policies that, that take into account um, social safety nets and, and gaps within those. Um, they have focused on uh, the, the gradual reopening of their economies and what to do when it, uh, they need to shut down again. So I, 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 I don't think it's regime type, but it really is about the, the thoughtfulness of the regimes, the uh, seriousness to which they are dealing with this, um, a willingness to uh, endure short-term economic pain uh, for the sake of long-term economic growth. Mm -hmm. um, I think also we're seeing a situation where uh, leadership that is statesmanlike, that sort of sees the broader perspective. Um, it, it can actually happen um, across uh, in, in, you know, you, you need to work in collaboratively, you need to allow science, you need to allow to engage in a more meaningful way. You know, as I said earlier, Indonesia has had some very good local management of Really, um, like the United States, one of the things that's happened is that, that governors and states have stepped up. We see that in Indonesia as well, yeah. uh, and I think uh, you know the, there has been. Uh, I think we'll lo learn more about those stories and lessons as we as things go forward and those stories come out. 
Um, so I think it's, it's unfair to say that all of what's happening in Indonesia can be seen from the lens of looking at what's happening in Jakarta or, or others. I think it is a much more diverse situation. Um, but <clears throat> I think that uh, there, Indonesia has strengths, uh, and the strengths come from the democratic uh, legitimacy that it has. Um, and I think Jokowi's administration has a very strong mandate. I believe there's a window for implementing a different type of approach. Um, and, and I think that uh, the Indonesia's trajectory uh, in terms of its economic growth, its global role, uh, was very positive before COVID-19. Um, and it is about being able to, to re-energize that, huh? to not let COVID-19 put it off on the track that Indonesia was, was on, which was a very positive trajectory. And this is where I think it, it, it's a real test of statesmanship, whether or not Jokowi can step back and say, hey, I'm caught in a situation where I've been moving towards uh, more military engagement, more um, uh, particular alliance relationships. Maybe it's time to reconfigure. And he did that in his first term. Keep in mind, he strategically reoriented himself. I think COVID-19 provides another opportunity for him to think again uh, how, uh, how uh, to move away from elite capture to begin to reorientate the, the policies and directions and, and, uh, towards a much more holistic and a different vision and a different relationship. I think that Indonesia has the, the components for a recovery um, if it begins to galvanize those. Mm. I'd like to explore more a bit on the, uh, the thing that you have mentioned earlier on the strong involvement of military in leading the fight against COVID-19. Even in your article, you stated that the weaknesses of the government response has forced the presidents to rely on militaries, right? Uh, you mentioned Indonesia and the Philippines are as the best cases to explain the situation. What message that those governments want to say to the public by more involving militaries? Do you think it's an effective strategy? You know, I, I talked to um, the, the, one of the leaders of ASEAN Intergovernmental Commission on Human Rights, and she said that uh, I think it's, it's been a wrong framework or campaign, not campaign, it's a, it's a wrong framework by the government that is, that is seeing COVID-19 as a war. That's why, that's why uh, they, she, she, she mentioned that that's why government tends to use militaries instead of a public health official. And when dealing with war, it means that there's someone, uh, you know, that someone should be leading as a, you know, should be leading as a very strong figure. You know, that's why the, you know, the leader of special task force in Indonesia, for example, he is a, he's a general. And so what message do you think uh, these governments are conveying to the public by involving militaries? I think that it's a terrible message. Um, militaries have certain skill sets. There's some things that they can do very well. Um, in a country like Indonesia or the Philippines, archipelagos, they have their own communications and command and control networks that are often better than the governments. They can deploy quickly, yet they should be in a support role Public health is not in their skill set. The generals are not trained in epidemiology. They are not trained in public health. They should be supporting. They should not be making policy. 
And it's never a good sign when a government has to resort on emergency powers. That means that normal, everyday governmental functions have failed. Um, and we also know that the militaries um, tend to, when they accumulate power, uh, give it up only uh, very reluctantly if they're not forced to do so. Um, and so I think this is a, a terrible uh, thing. Again, look at some of the other democracies that have had such effective uh, uh, responses to COVID-19, whether it's New Zealand, Taiwan, South Korea. You didn't see the militaries play leading roles in any of those countries. Um, and so I think this is a very, very dangerous response. In the case of Indonesia, we have seen a policy during Jokowi's first administration of Bela Nagara uh, trying to uh, recapture some of those lost authorities. Um, and that uh, uh, is something that the uh, incumbent Minister of Defense uh, uh, shares very similar goals um, and, and uh, aspirations for the military's role in society. I think it's a very dangerous precedent. I think it's bad for democracy. In wars, there is an enemy. The problem with COVID-19 is that enemy is not something you can see very clearly. And so the consequences of, that, of when you have this idea of the war is that you begin mobilizing in different directions that are not necessarily constructive. This is a public health crisis, and this is a crisis that involves the economy in it uh, in this context. It has to have individuals and technocrats that represent those particular sectors playing a much more prominent role. To conceptualize the crisis now is to conceptualize it not as a war, but as a recovery from something, right? Something that is much more holistic um, in this process. Uh, and I think that means to put some put in place people who actually are, understand the issues that are involved and understand the threats in a much more uh, meaningful way and also see how they are connected. Uh, you know, I think that it is not just about strategic deployment of resources and manpower and others. It's about uh, the health of those resources uh, and, the, and how they're connected. And this involves changing and, uh, and bringing a much more inclusive process. In particular, for example, one element I would like to highlight is there needs to be more women involved. Uh, if you look at the example of, um, of responses to the crisis globally, um, women have done, leaders have done a tremendously uh, uh, well, a good job in terms of it, dealing with empathy, dealing, being able to manage resources, to deal with different um, uh, communication strategies. This deficit of female leadership or female inclusion in the discussion, not just the scientists, and there are many female scientists as well, right, I'm talking about a more inclusive, a different way of framing uh, are, are necessary to kind of be more effective as things move forward. Awesome. So I think that's going to be my last question. Uh, I do understand that both of you are very busy schedule, tight schedule, um, and uh, I don't want to bother the, 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 your time. And um, I, I hope that we can uh, have time more in the future to discuss uh, more about this topic. And it's definitely a, a lot of things that we get as a new knowledge. 
And uh, I'm, I'm, I believe that our listeners are very happy with these conversations. So thank you so much, Professor Zach and Professor uh, Bridget. Uh, you can follow them in their social media and their Twitter maybe to, to, to get more about their knowledge. You can also contact them in case you are interested to explore more about this issue. So thank you so much and please stay safe and stay healthy and wherever, wherever you are. And greetings from Jakarta. Thank, thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much. Thank you for everyone to listen. Thank you. Terima kasih banyak. Terima kasih.